continue Famous Last Words, the series. And uh, as it relates to those last words, as I said the other two weeks as we introduced this series, it's interesting to note that a lot of times a person's last words, famous last words, really tell a lot about the person. Leonard Nimoy, of course, many of you would know him as Spock in Star Trek. His final tweet was, a life is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved except in memory. Live long and prosperous. John F. Kennedy's last words while riding in the back of a convertible in Dallas was, no, you certainly can't. Responding to the governor's wife's message, Mr. President, you certainly can't say that the people of Dallas haven't given you a nice welcome. Kind of interesting when you put it in perspective, isn't it? Leonardo da Vinci's last words were, I have offended God and mankind because my work did not reach the quality it should have. Today, we're going to be looking at the last words of Jesus while on the cross. So look at the introduction there on your outline. Jesus' last words on the cross were very calculated and revealed much about who he was and is and also his purpose and mission. And you think about it, when you look at the cross, and many people believe that he hung there for nine hours, and what was amazing about this whole scene is is the holiness of the moment. I mean, think about it. There there couldn't have been a more holy time in a uh, nine-hour period than that time. And yet, the the one who is holy is going to become the one who is plagued with sin. Sin will be placed upon him. But Jesus' last words on the cross, as it relates, I want us to look at seven statements of the messages that were there. The first is a message of forgiveness. In Luke chapter 23, it says, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And then here on the screen, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, here's what's interesting about this message. It was a message of forgiveness, but not a message of exoneration. Exoneration literally means to release from guilt, to release from the consequences of something that is caused. Jesus, with these words, was not granting salvation. He was praying to his heavenly Father, acknowledging that he held nothing against those who crucified him. If anything, it was a message of pity, For those who are responsible for his death, they were forgiven, yet they rejected what was offered by what they were seeing. They rejected rejected the salvation that came by way of the cross. I came across this a couple weeks ago, and I think you'll find it very interesting. The word said there, if you look at that verse carefully, then Jesus said, the word said there was written in the present tense. Uh, of course, it's a verb in which the action or words were continuous, which could have meant, and many scholars agree with this, that Jesus repeated these words time and time and time again on this period in which he was beaten, he was mocked, he was beaten uh, in the face, and yet he hung on a cross. And many people believe that that's not just a statement that happened one time, but it was a statement that was said over and over and over again. Think about that. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You see, the statement of Jesus while on the cross was not blanket redemption because of their ignorance. It wasn't that. 
Jesus wasn't giving forgiveness with that statement. What he was doing is he was basically making sure that he was right before his heavenly father. He wasn't holding anything against these people. Again, if anything, it was a message of pity. It was not a message of salvation. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, it says this, In him, speaking of Jesus, those in him have a forgiveness that leads to salvation. It says, in him, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of his grace. So when you look at all the happenings of what was happening there on the cross, and Jesus, when he did say, Father, forgive them again, it wasn't a reference to salvation. The thing that we do know is through redemption comes the forgiveness of sin, but not in this case. Not in what, that's not what he was extending there. It's important for us to understand that. But then we come to a second message. A message of salvation. Think about it. Two criminals hung on each side of Jesus. You know the story. One who cursed him. The other who received him. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 42. It says, Then he, one of the criminals on the cross, said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Notice Jesus' response. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, that you will be with me in paradise. Today you will. This statement not only records that the criminal received salvation, but also that Jesus is the one who holds the keys to paradise or what we would call heaven. Now, let me just say this. This should bring comfort to our souls. Think about that. That man who was hanging there on that cross, it was, it was there. The last moments of his life, he cries out, basically, Lord, save me. And you know what Jesus did? Based on the authority of Scripture, he saved him. He was with Jesus from that moment on. Now, the Bible does say this in Romans 10, verses 10 and 11. For with the heart one believes into righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him, believes on Jesus, will not be put to shame. And that's what was going on with this thief who was there on the cross. A third message we have here is a, is a message of uh, a desolation and, and isolation. Of course, desolation is the whole idea of ruin. Now think of that. Those nine hours on the cross and Jesus is hanging there. We're looking at a desolate uh, uh, scene here, a, a scene of isolation. Matthew 27 verse 45 says this. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The Bible says that Jesus was actually placed on the cross in the third hour. So what are we looking at here? What we're looking at here is the fact that Jesus, based on the, uh, the time, that they, the way they looked at time, he was placed on the cross at 9 o'clock. And then around noon, something happened. Something happened. Darkness was all over the land. Some people say the word land there could be earth, all over the earth. Now, here's what's amazing about this whole scene. Jesus was born at night Yet, there was the miracle of light. Do you remember the star? Jesus died during the day, yet there's the miracle of darkness. The Bible says from noon until three, the brightest part of the day, it was dark. How many of you would say there's something different here if you were there that day? The pagans, did you know that the pagans believed this type of darkness was the judgment of the gods? 
And when you look at this, you can kind of see, and, and of course, we see that it is God's judgment is being poured upon his son, and we see that whole scene here. And then we come to Matthew 27, verse 46, and it says, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever wondered about those words, what was going on there? You see, God the Father was separating himself from God the Son. Now think about that. What have we always heard about God the Father and God the Son? God the Holy Spirit. They're all, they're all equal, but not only that, they're all one. How does one separate himself from the other? How does that even happen? Even that was a miracle in itself. But why this? Why would, the, why would the Father have to separate himself from the Son? Here it is. God the Father was not able to look upon the sin which was placed upon Jesus the Son. Jesus, think of this, who was perfect was becoming sin to be the sacrifice for sin. And because of God's holiness, he wasn't able to look upon that. I want you to think about this. This is pretty amazing when you think about it. Perfection, which is in Jesus, perfection was taking on imperfection. So Jesus, perfection was taking on imperfection. Guess what imperfection there represents? Our sin was taken on our sin so that imperfection could become perfect. Think about that. Perfection was taken on imperfection so that imperfection could become perfect. Jesus was not, was not only taken on our sin, but here's what's interesting. A lot of people lose sight of this, but also the wrath that was due us. So when he took on our sin, he wasn't just taken on our sin. The, the implication here is that the wrath of God rested upon him also. Let me just say this. Did you know that your sin has to be punished? Did you know that? God set it up all along. And, and here's what Jesus was offering there on that cross. He was offering the fact that he would take upon your sin and allow God to judge your sin within him there on the cross by pouring out his wrath. He took that on for us, for you. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The physical pain that Jesus endured on the cross, you do know that there were others who endured the same type pain, don't you? So many times I hear people say, and I hear pastors say, and, I, and about every time this year, uh, this time of year, I always make the statement, and we get into the whole idea of how the spikes went through Jesus' hands. Actually, it was probably his palms, and, and, and the other spike went through his feet, and they, they, they pierced his side, and we, we hear about the beatings, and we hear about the scourging that he took on, and every bit of that was terrible, terrible. He did it on our behalf, but here's what you need to understand. There were a lot of men who were judged in that way, that were nailed to the cross, that, that were scourged. There were a lot who, who went that route. And so, so Jesus doing that, I mean, I think when we look at that whole idea, that whole scene, we should look at it and be appreciative of what Jesus has done. And he did it on our behalf. The others didn't do it on your behalf. He did it on your behalf. But here's what we lose sight of. What man did to him on that day was nothing compared to what the God the Father did to him on that day. Now think about this. Jesus, who was perfect, who was holy, had never been touched by sin, had never been touched by imperfection. All of a sudden, it was all placed upon him. You know, it's amazing how lightly we take our sin. 
I mean, really, I, uh, do you know we live in a world right now that, that gets some of its greatest comedy from laughing at sin? And if we're not so careful, we get caught up in that ourselves. And I'm just going to tell you, sin costs something. If you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, sin costs something. It costs him something. So the physical pain was nothing in comparison to what God the Father did to Jesus on our behalf. Now, now here's what you need to understand. Not only was the sin placed upon him, not only was it something that had never touched him, had never been a perfection became imperfection, but then the whole idea that Jesus now, or God the Father now, is going to punish that sin on Jesus. You know why he did that? So that you would not have to take on that wrath that was placed upon him. Next, it's interesting when you look at this whole message and you look at what Paul, what, uh, G, what's going on here on the cross, a message of desolation and ruin and isolation. Paul, Paul describes the scene this way. In Romans chapter 5, you may want to write this down, Romans 5, 6 through 9. Here's the way Paul looks at that whole scene there on the cross. He's, he looks out like this. For when we were still without strength, when it says still without strength, when there was nothing we could do in and of ourselves... Absolutely no way we could handle a certain matter. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who's included in the ungodly? That would be us. It would be us. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us and while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. You know what it means when we were sinners? It means, here, here, this is hard to get our minds around, but it's so true. Here's what it literally means. It means when we were an offense to God. You do realize that before you came to Christ, you were an offense to God. The Bible literally says you were making war against God before you came to know Christ. We don't like to think of it that way because we want to see ourselves in a good light. But our sin is very offensive to the Father. And, and, and so it was all placed on him. So God demonstrates his own love towards him. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, here it is, having been justified by his blood. Justified means declared righteous. It means you've met the terms of the agreement, of their agreement. And so therefore, we're justified by his blood. The whole reason we have a right standing with God right now is because of what Christ did on our behalf. And then it says this. As a result of that, we shall be saved from wrath through Jesus. We don't take on the wrath. It's interesting, Paul is, you know, he wasn't, we don't believe he was necessarily there, uh, but what's interesting is he's given us an accurate view of what happened right there on the cross. Think about it, a message of ruin and isolation is turned into a message of great love and hope. Next, we come to a message of identification. In John chapter 19, verse 28 it says that he, speaking of Jesus, said, I thirst, I thirst. Now, now, here's what you need to understand about the cross. This is what I believe about it. There were basically seven messages that, or seven statements that Jesus gave while on the cross. I believe none of them were by accident. I think every one of them were calculated. It was all in the sovereign plan of God. I think we can look at each of those statements and say, wow, there's a message here. There's something here that we need to take hold of. And so when Jesus said, I thirst, 
Many scholars believe that, that what Jesus was doing, he was identifying with us at that moment. He was identifying with us. But not only that, he was fulfilling prophecy that happened hundreds of years earlier. That, that's going on there too. But the main theme of what's going on here, when he said, I thirst, that's not something deity does. Thirsting comes from man. He, he is basically identifying with us. How do we know that? Well, John 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. Skip down to verse 17. And the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then you go to John chapter 18. Uh, this is an interesting scene. Jesus is before Pilate. Pilate therefore said to him, said to Jesus, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. And then this is what's so amazing. For this cause, he says, I was born. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness of the truth. Now, look at what he's saying. The cause is this. The cause is the, the, purpose, the, the purpose in which Jesus came, the mission for which he came. Why did he come? To bring redemption to mankind. To bring redemption to us who receive him. And so what he's saying here, this is amazing. He says, for this cause I was born. That's a reference to Bethlehem. That means, yes, I did come as a baby. I did come. But then he says, and for this cause I've come into the world. That means this. It's the whole idea that he preexisted. Think about that. You look at Jesus on the cross. He says, I thirst. He's identifying with us. It's interesting that most all these verses that we're reading here come out of the Gospel of John. John's theme seemed to be the fact that this one called God, Jesus, who he took on flesh. He came to identify with us. He's writing all this. And yet John is basically telling us, not only in John 1.1, he's also telling us in John, as, he, as Jesus is standing for Pilate, Jesus is saying, hey, I preexisted. I didn't just show up one night in Bethlehem. I preexisted. I came with purpose. I came for a reason. We go to the writer of Hebrews. Look at what he says. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. You do know this is a reference to Jesus himself. Jesus, you do understand he was a high priest for us. He was the epitome of the high priest. He was the mediator between us and God. He, he was the fulfillment of what it all should be. And so what you're seeing there, we have someone who came, who identified with us, not only identified with us, went through every imaginable way a person could go through, and yet he came out on the other side sinless. Will any of us be able to say that based on the life we've lived? No. But you know what's been given to us? The same thing that was said of Jesus, went through all that yet with no sin. Did you know that's what he's offering? On the cross, he took our sin. You know, what he's, you know what he gives as a result of taking on our sin? Us coming to him, repenting of our sins, placing our faith in him, turning our life over to him. You know what he gives us? He took our sin that he may give us his righteousness as though we've never sinned. He came as a message. Of, we see the message of identification. Jesus came into our fallen world to not only save us, but also identify with us. Next, we see a, a message of compassion. How many of you have ever looked at scripture and read something and, and it just kind of brought tears to your eyes. Not only for what Jesus has done on our behalf, 
But just the way Jesus tenderly dealt with people. How about the woman at the well and, and, and the sin that was represented there? And basically, he reached out to her shame and her, her guilt and her sin. And he, he basically, with compassion, reached out to it. He's done the same in our lives. But then we have a scene right here at the cross. In John chapter 19, Jesus is on the cross. I want you to get the scene. Jesus is on the cross. Mary, his mother, is there with some other women. And what's interesting is Mary, just as we read that Peter followed Jesus and, and was aware of everything that was going on with him, guess who else was doing that? Mary, the mother of Jesus. And there she is. She's at the foot of the cross, and she's looking up at him. And, and, and of course, the scene is here. And we have this special moment between a son and a mother. And here's what it says. He said, Jesus said to his mother, woman, behold thy son. Then he said to the disciple, did you know someone else was there? You know who this disciple was? It was John. It was John. He was there. And, and, and here's what he said. This is what Jesus said to John the disciple. Behold your mother. <laughs> you know what the connection's being made here? Hey, I'm getting ready to leave. Take care of mom. Take care of mom. You know, uh, when you look at what's being done about Mary and, and you look at what people have done to Mary and basically made, almost deified her. You know, Mary was no different than any of us. You do know that, right? She did sin. The only sinless one was Jesus Christ. She did sin. She, she was just like us. She, she dealt with all the things that we deal with. And the thing about her is she was special, but, but, but here's what we need to understand. In this conversation, Jesus is asking John to take care of his mother. And basically, we think for two reasons. It appears that, and here's what, the way it should have played out. Jesus should have been able to look at one of his, his brothers. You do know there were two other brothers in the family, don't you? Of two that we know of. That, that she, he, he should, you would think he would look at one of them and say, hey, take care of mom. But they weren't there. Many people believe they weren't believers yet. But yet they will become believers. But they're not believers yet. So he looks to, to John. Not only that, the oldest son was responsible for the family. After the father of the home passed away, guess who became the, 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 the authority and the one that took care of everyone? The oldest son. So Jesus is not only taking on the responsibility for our sin, he's taking on the responsibility he had here on earth of those that were closest to him. Jesus, as I said, was not only fulfilling his promise, his responsibility to his heavenly father, but also to his earthly mother. He was also demonstrating his great compassion for others. Luke chapter 4 kind of gives us the whole mission statement for why Jesus came. And it says this, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recover sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's what he came to do. You know what drove him to do that? His compassion that he has for us. Here's another message. Look on your outline. A message of redemption and perfection. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, He said, it is finished. Now think about that. Think about the life he lived, and all of a sudden, now he's saying, it's finished. 
This is what is called the perfect, uh, what's called the perfect tense, which literally means this. This is interesting. It is finished and will always be finished. That's what the perfect tense says. It is finished and it will always be finished. It's not a matter of going back and uncovering this again and going through the process. It's a done deal would be modern English. It's a done deal. His mission had been fulfilled to bring redemption to man, to make us right before God. And so we see other verses. Paul, again, demonstrates that he understood the context of this. In Colossians chapter 1, he said this. He, speaking of Jesus, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption. How did it come about? Through his blood, the blood of the cross, for the forgiveness of sins. How many of you are thankful for the forgiveness of sins? How many of you are thankful for redemption? And then in Hebrews, it says this, for by one offering, he, speaking of Jesus, has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Here's what that literally means. When we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior on his terms, where we repent of our sins, confess our sins, and we turn our life over to him, we begin to walk in him and belief and faith and trusting in him. All of a sudden, there's something that we need to be aware of. There's something that saved us, and it's not something that's going to not be there and then be there, not be there and be there. It is the perfect work of what Jesus Christ did on your behalf when you gave your life to him. It's perfected. It's finalized. It's all there. It can be counted on. How about this? Paul again tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For he, God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Y'all, this is not only a message of redemption and perfection. It's a message of victory. Here's another one. Or the last message we have here. It's a message of complete completion. In Luke chapter 23, verse 46, it says, And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The Bible goes on and says, Having said this, he breathed his last. The Gospel of John reads this way. It literally says that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know what's interesting about the way this is worded? The Roman executioners didn't take his life. They didn't, man didn't take his life. Matter of fact, Jesus said back early on, if you go back to earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus is standing there having a conversation with some Pharisees. Many people would say the people who would eventually want him dead. And this is what he tells these Pharisees. In John 10, verse 18, he says, Jesus said to the religious responsible, possibly responsible for his death, no one takes it. He's speaking of his life. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and what's coming. And I have the power to take it up. He's not only going to tell it when to shut down, he's going to tell it when to pick it back up. That's kind of interesting when you think about it. But, but you, they couldn't take his life. He willingly laid it down. He literally, if you really want to be literal about this, he literally told his heart when to stop beating and told his, his, and told his breath when to stop breathing. He told every bit of that. It was on his terms. 
So here's the application. The message of the cross incites a response. The word incites literally means to stir, to encourage, to act. So the message of the Christ of the cross incites a response to follow or ignore. Do you know we live in a world in which everyone, everyone wants to ignore it? They don't want to come face to face with it. It's amazing when you witness the people in our society now. And you talk with them and you try to have a conversation with them about Christ or Jesus. Uh, it's amazing how they deflect. Have you ever noticed that? Well, it's a personal matter. I don't think it's something that needs to be discussed out open. Uh, uh, yeah, I go to church in such and such place. Or, yeah, I, my daddy was a Christian. My grandmother was a Christian. I mean, it just kind of falls right down, doesn't it? I mean, but no one really wants to talk about the terms. No one really wants to talk about Jesus. You know why? Because they don't want to feel like a sinner. They don't like the way that makes it. They don't want to go there. So they just as soon ignore it instead of following. Here's another statement. The message of the cross also demands reflection to remember and identify with.
Paul there of Jesus basically saying, do this in remembrance of me, is basically what he was saying. He's saying, identify with this. Identify with this. Remember this. This was done on your behalf. So in the, in the moments coming up here in just a moment, we're going to observe communion. And what we're doing is we're coming to identify with the body that was broken on our behalf and the blood that was shed. And so what we would like for you to do, if you would, uh, we're not going to pass out the, the, the bread and the wine. We're going to ask you to come to the front and partake of that. But, but here's what I want to ask you to do. Maybe before you come to the table, maybe you take a moment there in your seat and just make sure that you're right before God. This is a very serious matter. This is for those who are believers in Christ, those who have come to Jesus Christ on His terms through repentance and turning their life over to Him. You're identifying with what took place there on the cross. You're identifying with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. But you're mainly identifying with the redemption that He's provided for you and the remission of sin. And so here's how we're going to do this. We have six stations here. There's one on the corner there, one on the corner. And there's two here in the middle on this table and two on this. So there's six different stations. And we just ask you to come forward, take the bread, take the juice, then maybe have a time of prayer there with your family or if you're an individual with yourself. Just, just come and let this be a special time of reflecting and identifying with Him. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to come this morning. And Father, I thank you for those that are gathered here today. And Lord, we just thank you that many of the people that I see, I know they have a testimony of knowing you. I've seen it in their life. And Father, I thank you that they already have identified with you through the life in which they live. But Lord, there comes those special moments when we can come and identify through what's called communion. That, 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 that thing that you demonstrated to us, to told us to remember. Father, as we come here to these tables today, help us to, to remember, help us to identify with what you've done on our behalf. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just feel the freedom to come?